0: One thing about history, and those of you who have studied history would testify to the fact, there's one thing about history that seems to be able to repeat itself with such precision. One of the repeated events in history that you see throughout the Bible is that immediately prior to the judgment of God, there seemed to be perversion. There seemed to be corruption. There seemed to be hostility toward God. But not only that, but that perversion, because that always has been. But the time immediately prior to a judgment of God. That perversion and corruption and hostility toward God seemed to reach a fever pitch. In fact, you find that this was the case immediately before the flood. That was the case. Immediately before the judgment upon Babel. This was the case immediately before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. This was the case immediately before the judgment of Pharaoh. Who despised God in the time of the Exodus. And I can go on in history. And I am wondering aloud. Could it be? Could it be that we are living... In a time that is immediately prior to the coming judgment. I know there are some who believe that the judgment has already begun. Certainly if history is any indication. That the stage has now been set for the coming judgment. Well look around you. At the perversion, corruption, hostility toward God. Just look around you. Today we have defiance And hatred toward God's Son all across the globe. There is rampant corruption and perversion even among those who claim to be Christians. We have homosexuals in the pulpits. We have abortionists on church boards. We have sexual abuses of children among the clergy. We have greed. ...and covetousness among the so-called prosperity preachers. We have unbelief in the hearts of millions of those who fill the pews in churches across the world. Millions of people pack out churches during time of national crisis, but as soon as the crisis is over, they back to worse form of idolatry than before. Some institutional churches have become nothing but social clubs or fraternity with a building with a cross on top of it. The gospel of Jesus Christ as the only way for salvation from the judgment that is to come has been replaced by the gospel of tolerance and by the gospel of political correctness. Even some of the elect to they have opted for entertainment instead of the preaching of the Word of God. Look around you, and if history is an indication of what happens when perversion reaches a high crescendo, then full-blown judgment is around the corner. And that makes Psalm 14 to be a very relevant psalm indeed today to us. Psalm 14. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, their deeds are vile, there is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there is anyone who understands, any who seek God. All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is what will evil doers never learn? Those who devour my people as men eat bread, and who do not call on the Lord, they are overwhelmed with dread. For God is present in the company of the righteous. You evildoers frustrate the plan of the poor, but the Lord is their refuge. All that salvation from Israel would come from Zion, if the Lord restores the fullness of people. Let Jacob rejoice and Israel be glad. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus that you would open our spiritual eyes, that we will see the magnificent truths that can only be found in your word. And we pray that in that mighty name. Amen. Amen. David was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to be privileged to be able to peer into the very proceedings. Of the heavenly courts. David was given this rare privilege, that rare honor, to be able to get a glimpse into the inner sanctum of God's courts. And there he tells us three things basically. He tells us in verses 1 to 3 of Psalm 14 about the court's summons. And then he tells us in verse 4 about the court's summation. And then he tells us, in verses five and six, about the judge 's sentences. First, he tells us about the court summation. I want you to imagine, in your mind, in your vivid imagination, I want you to imagine a court room, and a judge is sitting on a high bench, and there in the dock, as a prisoner, is humanity. Keep that visual picture in your mind in order to understand what David is trying to tell us in Psalm 14. Here's a human race is sitting in a dock under the accusation, being accused of total depravity, totally depraved. The height of depravity, says the scripture, is a denial that there is no God. I want you to listen carefully to what I'm going to tell you. Man's deepest desire Is that that there is no God. And that desire in man's heart is so strong. It's so powerful that it turns into a religion. The fool says in his heart there is no God. Now you cannot understand who is the fool here without understanding who is God. David does not use the name Yahweh or Jehovah here in this Verse 1 of Psalm 14. But he uses another name for God. L-E-L. You say, what's so important about that? It's very important. Because the name Jehovah. Always communicates a different character of God. Than the name L. There are people who would like to stick to one of God's character and deny the rest of the character of God. They like to concentrate on the love of God and they like to ignore the justice of God. They would rather focus on the mercy of God and ignore the judgment of God. But you see, all of God's character, they have to go together. You cannot separate them. Jehovah in the Old Testament communicates the covenant-making God. The word Jehovah communicates that the God who's our provider. Jehovah communicates of God the giver. It communicates of Jehovah God our sustainer. Jehovah speaks of God's generosity. Jehovah speaks of God's graciousness. But El, on the other hand, represents the God who revealed himself in the Bible. The God of moral absolutes. The God of moral standards. The God who demands something out of us. Now put it in this light. And this deliberate choice of the word L by the Holy Spirit who inspired David for God. Now you understand the description of a fool. Listen carefully. A fool, therefore, includes the atheists, but not only the atheists. A fool here includes the agnostics, but not only the agnostics. A fool here includes the indifferent. The word here includes everyone who worships a God of their own image. Everyone who wants a God who does not change them. Everyone who wants a God who does not challenge them. Everyone who wants a God who does not demand righteousness out of them. Everyone who wants a God who does not demand anything out of them. Everyone who wants a God who does not judge their morality. Everyone who wants a God who does not condemn their corruption. Everyone who wants a God who does not demand their exclusive allegiance and loyalty to him. They include everyone who wants a God who does not demand to be accepted as the only truth. All of this comes under the rubric... Of a fool. You know, fools come in all shapes and sizes. I read about the little boy who has atheist parents and he could see the foolishness of the lifestyle. And one day he got frustrated when he became a teenager. He looked at his parents, he said, Why do we fight against God so much when we don't believe in him? <laughs> I can tell you that young man is not a fool. Somebody said, "It is better to remain silent and be thought of a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubts." <laughs> I think I understand that. I heard about this foolish couple who made a few bucks, and they thought they are now conjoined the ranks of the social climbers. And they began to hang out with the upper crust. You know what I mean by the upper crust? Upper crust is where the crumbs hang out together. (laughs) Well, this couple, the social climbers who wanted to go to all these functions with the upper crust, and got into a party, and there somebody was talking about Mozart. And this person was talking about how. Brilliant Mozart was. What a, a, a very a genius arranger and went on and on and on and then and the wife jumped in the middle of this conversation and she said, Mozart Mozart, I know Mozart, I love Mozart. Only the other morning I saw him going on bus number five going to Coney Island. Well, her husband was totally embarrassed. I mean, he just had to hide his face. He said, get your coat. Let's get out of here. And they got out, and he was absolutely furious. He kept muttering and muttering in the car. And finally, she said to him, she said, are you mad with me? He said, mad. He said, I can't show my face among these people again. You embarrassed me. And, and he just, she said, why? He said, everyone in the world knows that bus number five doesn't go to Coney Island. The fool said in his heart, there is no God. A literal translation of this would be the following. Listen carefully. The fool is the one who denies the God of the Bible. The fool is the one who denies the God who has revealed himself in his word. A fool is the one who refuses to accept God's injunctions. A fool is the one who rejects God's Messiah. A fool is the one who refuses to submit to God's moral absolutes. A fool is the one who denies that the only God is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. A fool is the one who denies that Jesus is the only way to the Father and the only way to salvation. That's the definition of a fool. I know you tell your kids not to use the word, but since the Bible used it, you need to teach them. The real meaning of the word, because really the word fool that's used here, the Hebrew word nabal, does not mean stupid, really does not mean that at all. It does not denote intellectual weakness. And I want to tell you in all truthfulness nobody has ever accused unbelievers of being dumb or stupid. But the word nabal in Hebrew means moral perversion. That's what it means. Many of those who don't believe in God and reject the authority of God and reject the Messiah of God are brilliant people. They are intellectually brilliant. They are thinking people. But when it comes to all to the all-important truths, they are foolish. There's something else I want you to notice here in this particular verse before I move on. All earthly courts would pronounce judgment... And deal with a person who's been accused of an action. Something that person did. Something that person said. Something that person has committed. Only the heavenly court is able to judge a person based on his thoughts. And that is why no one, but no one, but no one is going to make it to heaven. Other than by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 2. For by nature, no one seeks after God. You see, God looks from heaven, and he can't find anyone by nature seeking after him. Not a single human being on the face of the universe. If you are seeking after God right now, it's because God has been seeking after you, and you're only responding to him. So he said here, by nature, no one seeks after God. So we come to this stage in the court case Where the accusation sticks, where the summons have been vindicated, where the witnesses are impeccable, where the evidences are overwhelming. Those who have depraved minds because they want to have depraved minds. And Paul answers this question both in Romans chapter 1 and in chapter 3. He said that the evidence of God's presence everywhere in creation... But man in his depravity has refused to see God, let alone obey God and worship God. And so you see the heavenly summons. Secondly, I want you to see in verse 4, the heavenly summation. I don't want you to miss this. Because I think even when we talk about the justice of God and the judgment of God, it is not arbitrary. It is not capricious. And I don't want you to miss it here in verse 4 of Psalm 14. You cannot miss in this verse how the judge is grieving. You cannot miss how the judge is sorrowful. You cannot miss how the judge has a broken heart. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge? The word for iniquity here is the same word that is used in the Old Testament to denote Israel's perversion. What was Israel's perversion? Let me tell you something. The one thing that ticked God off about Israel is that they go on the Sabbath to bow to Yahweh. And for the rest of the week, they were bowing to Baal. That's Israel's perversion. That's the idolatry. I want you to hear me right here on this one. God's summation against the institutional church today is abundantly clear. God is exercised at the fact that so many churches that carry his son's name also practice new age spirituality. God is exercised. As so many churches that have Bibles in their pews, they have Confucius philosophy tracts in those same pews. So many churches that name the name of Jesus also name the name of other religions. So many churchgoers believe that all religions are equally true. So many church goers bow to Jesus on Sunday. And then they bow to money for the rest of the week. So many churchgoers say that Jesus is a way, a truth, and a life. And the summation of the heavenly court is now given. It is given. And it sets the stage for the coming judgment. And there finally, you see the judge pronouncing his sentence verse 5 what is the sentence here is what he said fear and dread is going to be the life's companion that's the sentence fear and dread is going to be the life's companion why because no one can save themselves because no one will be able to have an excuse Because no one can placate themselves from God's judgment. Because no one can stand in his or her own defense. Because there is no one who can stand in another person's defense. Therefore, the verdict and the sentencing is a life of restlessness, a life of fear, an eternal life of torment. That's the sentence. No wonder we're trying to find a pill for every sickness. No wonder we're trying to find solution to every problem. No wonder we are trying to look to an escape hatch in every challenge. No wonder we are trying to create a diversion to every stress. No wonder we are trying to run away from life's demands. Because man is under a sentence of restlessness, a sentence of fear a sentence of dread, and a sentence of eternity in turmoil. Had the psalm finished on verse 6, it would have been the most depressing psalm and the most depressing passage in the entire Bible. But thank God it does not end on verse 6. If you focused with me on all that I've just said, and you miss what I'm going to tell you about verse 7, You miss the whole thing. In fact, you'll be thoroughly confused. Because this is like the first six verses is like a house that has no roof on it. It's like the first act of a play. You must understand verse 7. Because verse 7 has the good news. This is a very dramatic moment. Here, again, the scene is the court. And the judge already has pronounced the verdict. And he made the sentence. And the courts of heaven have adjourned. The verdict was in. And after the accused have been escorted out of the court, then all of a sudden, the judge reconvenes the court again. All of a sudden, in verse 7, we see the court reconvenes. All of a sudden, we see new evidence coming into light. All of a sudden, new wonderful truths have been injected into the trial. All of a sudden, new hope for the sentence have been found. Listen to the verse. Oh, that the salvation of God would come out of Zion. What's going on here? What's going on? The judge has suspended the sentence for a period. Why? The judge wanted to see if anyone would avail themselves to that wonderful new opportunity. The judge will give all people everywhere the opportunity to be delivered from this sentence, to be delivered from this eternal Sentence: The judge has now ordered a stay of execution. The judge will wait until he can see if anyone would accept the pardon that is offered by him. My beloved friend, I want to tell you, on the day of judgment, political correctness will not deliver you. Acceptance of other religions is equally true, that caused you to compromise your faith will not help you. Indifference under the guise of ignorance will not defend you. Excuses such as, what will happen to those who have never heard, that will not wash. Dinamo national loyalty will not speak for you. Buddha, Krishna, Muhammad, and the rest of them will be in the same boat as everybody else. There is only one Who can speak for you. And his name is Jesus. There's only one who can defend you. And his name is Jesus. There's only one who can pronounce you guiltless. And his name is Jesus. And he has already said, there is no condemnation upon those who are in Christ Jesus. Now if you have never ran to him. If you have never cried to him for cover from the judgment to come. You can do that today. That's what verse 7 is all about. Who came from Zion? But the virgin born, son of David, God's anointed Messiah, through whom and whom alone there will be salvation. If the coming judgment creates a dread in your life, if every time the thought of the coming judgment causes you discomfort in your heart, chances are you have not submitted to the only one who can save you on the day of judgment. And you can do that today. You can submit to Him today. You can invite Him into your life today. You can accept His seeking after you today. For those of us who love the Lord Jesus, those of us who have surrendered to Him, those of us who adore Him, His return is not a day of dread for us. It is a great day of rejoicing. The return of the Lord Jesus Christ is not a day that scares us and frightens us. It's a day of jubilation. We can't wait till He comes back. The day of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is going to be a day of celebration for all who have put their trust in Jesus. I'm finding myself lately been crying, come Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, looking forward to the day, not dreading it. Because those who are in Christ Jesus have passed from judgment into life. And so can you, and you can do it today. If anyone would say, I have sought after God for so long, and I can't find peace, it's because you have not responded to His seeking. Today, you can surrender and stop running. And you can say to him, Lord Jesus, come into my life. I repent of my sins. I receive you as the Savior of my soul and the Lord of my life. Fill me with the joy unspeakable. Deliver me from that fear and dread. And let me be assured from your word that indeed your time of return is a time of rejoicing. In your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.